objective and relevance. These are the crucial issues in our work. The objective defines what we want to accomplish. Relevance speaks to how we go about it. So we're always asking what we are engaged in. Is it worth doing? And then we have to ask, are we getting the job done? Now Jesus defines very clearly the objective is to reach the nations with the gospel. That is, that the world might come to know why we are made, to know God, to love Him, and to rejoice in Him forever. This is the mission committed to those who go forth with the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, which is evangelism. But as we recognize the objective to reach the world, we have to continually evaluate what we're doing to accomplish that goal. Jesus tells us to make disciples, which we understand as the key to His plan for every person fulfilling that objective of reaching the world. And since Jesus Himself is the way by which we understand what discipling means, we've turned our attention to Him who in His own life among us reveals how we go about making disciples. And we began where we first met Him. We call it the principle of incarnation a principle that undergirds everything that we do, for it was at the very heartbeat of our Lord's life on this earth. He came into the world because He loved us and finally gave His life that we might know Him in His redeeming grace. And that sets before us the pattern by which our life must be founded in servanthood. Letting people see by our very act that we love them. And when we're known as a servant, there'll always be some people that want to know why we're different. It'll establish credibility for what we say, and people want to learn more. But recognizing that as the foundation, we have to realize our own limitations, just as Jesus demonstrated. He couldn't be with everybody in the world, though He loved them all and died to save the world. And while He was here, in the midst of a very busy ministry, responding to the heartbreak of people around Him, He concentrated upon a relatively small group of people, underscoring this principle of selection. Though difficult to keep in focus, it is a way by which we can focus our life upon a few 
who are close enough to us who can learn the lifestyle that we have learned from Jesus. But you must ask, how do we go about that? And that brings us to this third principle of association. Jesus brought these learners close to him. They were to learn by being with him. And to know him was essentially to be with him. And so, as he ministered to the multitudes, he was especially conscious of a few that were following him called disciples, learners. Uh, they walked the, trail, the trails together. They went to the synagogue and the temple together. Uh, they, on occasion, would go to the mountain or to the deserts together. And, as you can see, they usually worked together. He came to save the world. That was clearly the objective. But while he was here, he spent more time with a small group of learners than with everybody else in the world put together. Now this is very obvious, but sometimes we miss its simplicity. But we must recognize this is the the way God is ordained for every person to learn. And it's brought in to focus in creation. For God made us to live together. He created a man and a woman, performed the first marriage himself there in the garden. And out of this relationship, He ordained there would be the procreation of the human race. Now, I think from the standpoint of biology, uh, that has been fairly well accomplished. Certainly there are multitudes of people scattered now across the world, numbering close to seven billion. So that aspect of his design in creating a people who would multiply has been fulfilled. But the more personal dimension of it, I'm afraid, has been often overlooked. Because in that relationship at home, first the man and the woman together in marriage, but as they in turn begin to reproduce a family, that unit, that home becomes the center of training. And so everyone born has the opportunity to learn from their parents and likely others in the family, brothers and sisters. Had Adam and Eve walked with God, they could have taught the secret of their fellowship with God to their children. How by obedience to Christ, expressing their faith, they could continue to have eaten of that tree of life. But, of course, we know the tragedy of their rebellion and because of their sin, we've been suffering consequences ever since. But what was 
very clearly portrayed in creation the principle of being together as the foundation for learning has remained as the basis for discipleship. And there's no way that we can escape this obligation. In fact, it is so natural. You cannot enter the world without coming into the context of learning how to make disciples. Sometimes students will come to me and they say, what you talk about is great because you emphasize the family, but you don't understand my situation. I was brought up in a very dysfunctional family. There's not a lot there that was very positive that I could learn from. And that is very unfortunate. And yet, to be honest, most of our families in some way are dysfunctional. But that is no excuse for failing to learn how to make disciples. But we have to learn from our failures. And this is something that if you learn here, you can become one of the smartest people on the face of the earth. For if you can learn from your failures, there's no end to what you can learn. If you can look back upon those early years at home when you were being neglected or being abused or pushed aside and identify the problem, you can correct it. And then you can improve upon it and you can move on from there and really know how to make disciples. By being together, we have that opportunity. In fact, whether we realize it or not, when we are with other people, they are learning from our influence. Whether it's good or bad, it's inevitable. Everybody is being discipled some way in the relationships that they have. The tragedy is, for far too many, it is negative, And that relationship is not bringing us closer to God. But what we see here is the foundation for all education. Someone said a college is a professor on one end of a log and the student on the other end. Now, I know that's an oversimplification, but I think uh, you can see the necessity of having a relationship. But if you see ten on one end of the log and one on the other, where are you going to pitch in and help? We certainly need to help those that are struggling without the support of others to carry the load. But we need this relationship, which is going to be the key to our whole approach in evangelism and in discipling. Wherever we start, it will begin with someone near us who can observe in us what we are and what we want to become. Though this principle of relational training at home was lost by our forebearer's sin in the Garden of Eden, the principle has remained. Unless we forget it, 
it was actually written into the law. As you read in the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy, for example, beginning at verse 4, Moses writes, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Certainly that's a text that we often use when we think of the Muslim challenge. But then he says, Love the Lord our God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Now notice, he goes on to say, Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. God wants our homes to be a sanctuary, to be a testimony, so that everyone who comes in and out of that home will see the glory of Jesus Christ. And this is most prominent, of course, with those who live in the home all the time, the children. It's the principle of creation that God ordained in the beginning. And that principle flows throughout life. We dare not overlook the opportunity He's given everyone every day at home to fulfill the Great Commission. So we're going to see how the opportunity to make disciples is a natural expression of life. So that this is not something that relates to the pastor or the evangelist or uh, the Bible teacher. This is a way of life that is basic to every single person. This is the foundation of every Christian. We live the Great Commission every day. And when this is understood and brought into the context of practical living, you can see how the whole world can hear the gospel. But it will involve us all. It will involve everyone to whom this command was given, the whole church, everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ. We'll look around and see who those are close to you. Have they seen enough of your life to recognize that you're different? By your acts of kindness and concern, have you demonstrated that you really care? And have you sought to minister in a relevant way to their need? Then, have you had the opportunity to tell them why? Your life is different? Have you shared with them the good news of the love of God that consummates finally in the life and work of Jesus Christ? That relationship is the basis for reaching the persons that God brings into your life, which all of us have along the way. And it will help, I think, to put some expression to it by getting together 
with some of these that are close to you and, and have a time of, of prayer and the study of the Bible, a time of worship. And that's why I feel that every family will profit if there's a time when they can gather together around the Scripture and pray every day. We used to call it the family altar. Might be in the morning, might be in the evening, might be in connection with a, a dinner or a breakfast. Never found a perfect way to do it, but it's sometime during the day actually put into the schedule when those in the household come together to worship God and to pray one for another. Certainly this is the pattern of the apostolic church. They didn't have church buildings for 150 years. Where do you suppose they got together? Well, it was in their houses or in other public places or maybe out along a river bank. No, it's not the building that really makes a difference. It's the relationship. The closer you get to the family principle, the more relevant you're going to be to making disciples. I remember after I came to know Christ in a very personal way when I was at the university, I wondered how I would get some support and encouragement because where I was on campus at that time, I, I didn't get any support from the religious community. I wondered where I would go. The church had no life that appealed to me, at least that caught my attention. But I knew that there were some boys there in the dormitory uh, that were Christians. At least they had faith. They would go to church. And I remember going down the hall one night knocking on the door and asking the guys, would you like to come down and, and pray with me tonight? We're going to just have a few minutes to pray together. I could usually get three or four, sometimes a half a dozen that would come down to the room. And we would kneel down and pray. We didn't know theology from breakfast food, but we could pray. Not very long, might only be five or ten minutes, we would run out of gas. But the fact that we got down on our knees together meant more to me than anything else in that college experience. I knew I wasn't alone. There were some other guys like me that wanted that encouragement of having someone to pray with. And I remember how this was brought to my attention later when I was asked to become a professor of evangelism because of, of my, uh, my ministry of reaching out to people. I would visit everybody within a couple of miles of the church. I knocked on every door. And I learned if I would be creative and I would preach the gospel, uh, people would respond, and, and so the churches grew, and after a while, someone thought, well, I knew something about evangelism, and someone had given a, 
some money to the university or to the seminary at Asbury to start a chair that he didn't have any before that time and asked me if I would be the teacher. Well, I accepted the, the challenge because if you really want to learn something, try to teach what you know. It'll make you learn a little more. They didn't know how ignorant I was. But not having read in this discipline, never having taken a course in my whole life in evangelism, I said, we'll just turn to the Gospels. I knew that was a good place to start to look at Jesus. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John became our basic text. And we would read through the Gospel and ask the question, now what did Jesus do? And then we would say, now how does that relate to our life? What is the practical application? And we began to see very soon how he related to people individually and how through personal witnessing in the context in which they lived, people began to understand who he was and what he had come to do. But after a while I began to ask, we can see how he relates personally to people, but how is he going to reach the whole world? That's his purpose in coming. What's his strategy? And then I began to realize why he told us what he was doing, what his basic plan was in the Great Commission. And at the end of his life, he simply enunciated to his followers what he had been demonstrating. And when I saw it, what an amazing revelation it was because I realized that for many years I had been seeking to get the attention of crowds of people and getting large congregations and building churches, but I had missed the heartbeat of the Great Commission. I'd been making converts, but not disciples. And when I saw it, and particularly this principle of being together, I realized, well, if this is true, and I believed it was, it's got to be relevant to me. Well, here I am now, a professor. I'm not a pastor any longer, as I had been for six years prior to this. But if the principle is true, it has to work just as well as a professor as a pastor, or for that matter, as an automobile mechanic, or a farmer, or a teacher, or anything else. And that's true of you as well. So I remember that day in class, I announced that in the morning I'd be in the office at 6 o'clock. If anybody wanted to come over and join me, I would be there. I just mentioned it once as the class began. There was a lot of confusion, people moving around, because I didn't want a crowd, but a few did show up the next morning, and we prayed together around the Bible. And that began now more than 50 years ago. And in different ways, in different places, that has been a pattern that I've tried to follow in my life. Getting together with a few people who, like myself, want to learn more about Jesus. Is that your desire? Are you finding a few people that can pray with you like that? 
and together with you seek first the kingdom of God. As I have been a professor now for years, I've found it rather easy to get a few students together once a week. We usually pray in the morning at 6 o'clock. There's not much competition on a college campus at that hour. And we will dismiss before classes start, usually at 8 o'clock or 7.45. And we always dismiss on time. And I've learned now to look for those who will commit themselves in the beginning to keep a discipline. I'm not interested in stragglers or just people coming out of curiosity. I've done that sometimes, but I learn I want to maximize the time. And so I want just a few that will gather with me. And so we will agree together to a discipline that involves attendance every single week. And I will plan my schedule long in advance so I can be there on Tuesday morning. I may be across the country Monday night speaking, but I'll be back Tuesday morning at 6 o'clock. And the students also know what I'm doing to accommodate the schedule. And so they also know they have to be there. And so no one ever misses. And we also agree to a time when we can pray every day. On our own, we call it the quiet hour. And we can talk about that when we come together. How are you getting along in your quiet time? You get so disrupted and so crowded that that is pushed aside. You probably need to go over your priorities again. And we'll usually accept a portion of the Scripture and we'll all read that same passage, usually a couple of chapters a day. And we can talk about that. We change this this discipline from time to time, but included in it is also the expectation that we'll be reaching out to at least another person to meet with, to talk with, and to share deeply as we are sharing together. Now, I'm not saying anybody has to do it that way, but this is a way that I have found relevant to my schedule. And I think that everybody has a similar opportunity where you live. It doesn't have to be an organized, announced program in the church, although it won't hurt if the church does give encouragement to small groups meeting in the church. Growing churches are churches that are made up of small groups, and it doesn't matter the size of the church, whether it's just a dozen or whether it's hundreds of thousands as the great church, central church in Seoul, Korea. You just multiply the small groups and everybody will have a chance to relate to somebody else, to ask a question, to express their own needs, and then to bear one another's burdens. Have you noticed how often that expression is used in the New Testament? One another. It was characteristic of the apostolic church it's a principle of being together woven into the heartbeat of the Great Commission. And I think it's obvious. Wherever we are, I need to step over here for a moment and read what Billy Graham says when he was asked the question, Mr. Graham, what would you do 
if you were a pastor of a large church in a principal city, what would be your plan of action? And he replied, I think one of the first things I would do would be to get a small group of eight or ten or twelve people around me that would meet a few hours a week and pay the price. It would cost them something in time and effort, and I would share with them everything I have over a period of years, and then I would actually have twelve ministers among the lay people who in turn would take eight or ten or twelve more and teach them. So says Billy Graham. But he only echoes this principle, this principle that is so obvious, so natural, that it is a part of every life. But how powerful it is when it is caught as the heartbeat of a Great Commission lifestyle. And you seize your relationships every day to make disciples. And of course, it underscores what we've already said. You'll not be able to get close to everybody in the church or everybody in the crowd to whom you preach or you work beside. You can still have that contact, and you can still use that as an opportunity to communicate the good news. But primarily, your influence is going to center upon a few people that you're with a good part of your life. Are the few people around you learning how to make disciples? Are they catching that objective, the goal to which everything is moving, when finally the nations will come to know Him whom to know aright, His life everlasting? That's the principle. That's the principle of association. Jesus stayed with His learners, so we too must be close to growing disciples. Bring them into the routine of our daily life. And the more casual the fellowship, I think, probably the more effective it is. Just eating together. Just going shopping together, going to the ball game together. It's not much fun to go to a game by yourself or having a round of golf. Who wants to play golf alone? Now, I've seen some crazies out there sometime alone on the course. I feel sorry for them. Golf is a, main to, is a game to make disciples. There's no other reason to play it. Why would you do anything unless you knew you were making disciples? This is what puts meaning into every activity of life. Nothing is peripheral. Nothing is accidental. It's all part of the plan to reach the whole world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, some fellowship can be scheduled in organized groups, and you can have occasional times for an extended period of reflection, like perhaps some of you have in coming to the seminar today. I hope you didn't come alone. 
I hope you came with somebody else so you can talk about it on the way back. In fact, I hope that you'll learn to do as many things as possible with someone else. Try to avoid being a lone ranger. There are times when you can't escape it. But generally, if we have a little forethought, we can arrange to do things together just like Jesus. So his disciples were learning all the time this basic principle of disciple-making, a principle that they in turn could incorporate into their own lifestyle and learn how to impart that same lifestyle to those that follow them. Every Christian can fulfill the Great Commission. Well, that's this principle of association, but it brings us now to think about what it takes in terms of commitment. We've got to move on to the fourth principle of consecration.